Hello and welcome to the third War Films podcast. This episode we will be talking about Paths of Glory, the Stanley Kubrick film from 1957. We've already done The Guns of Navarone and Platoon. I'm Garen Ewing. I'm a comic artist and writer. I do a comic called The Adventures of Julius Chancer, and I'm doing this podcast with my brother Murray. Hello, I'm Murray. Um, I write, uh, I do a bit of music, and um, I've got a blog called Musings. So we're looking at 10 war films in this podcast series. We previously did 10 adventure films, and this time we're looking at Paths of Glory, which is all about World War I. Um, had you seen this film before, Murray? Yes, I had. It was one of those films that I saw, I think I, I sort of caught it on a Saturday afternoon or something, or maybe I recorded it, Yeah, just thinking, oh, Stanley Kubrick, um, <laughs> I'll watch it, because you know, he's one of those directors you know you'll get a good film from. Yes. Even his early ones you know, will be interesting. So I watched it, and I, I really found the, the plot, or the sort of central dramatic situation, uh, intriguing. Yes. Um, yeah, I'd seen it... I hadn't seen the whole film. Um, I think I'd come in maybe a little less than a third of the way through and thought, yeah. wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, that led me to buy it on DVD quite a while ago, and I, I watched it, and then, of course, I've watched it again for this. But, yes, um, are you generally a Stanley Kubrick fan? I'm not hugely. I think I've seen almost all his films. I haven't seen the really early ones. He did a couple of yeah. noir ones. Yes. I tend to, you know, I'm interested in seeing his films, but then there's only I only actually own two on DVD, which right. is my my way of judging how much I actually <laughs> like a film. Well, you know? he didn't make that many, so. Yeah. But w which two do you own? I've got The Shining. Yes. Which is one of those films which I think is really great, but I I actually haven't watched it on DVD because I no. find it so scary. Oh, I'm exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. I love the film, and I own it on DVD, and I think. I've, I haven't watched I don't think I've watched my disc and maybe I have once yeah I actually bought it about the time I worked at a hotel sometimes at nights and it was not good for my health to I do can that. imagine that that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, the other one and the other one is Eyes Wide Shut right. which is probably his most you know loads of people don't seem to like it yeah um, I do I mean I prefer it I don't know if I could say I prefer it to 2001 I saw 2001 again recently I thought that's a brilliant film but mm. it doesn't really sort of it's more like an important film than a yes. film you want to watch. Right, uh, yes, yes. Otherwise, Shut, I think, is, it's got that sort of noir feel, which is something I like, yeah. sort of psychological drama. It's very much about people, where 2001 is more about yeah. vast concepts. Yes. So, I'm the same. I, um, I really like Eyes Wide Shut, and yeah. that is definitely one that people either love or hate, and most people I've come across seem to hate it. So <laughs> I, I tend not to sort of say it that that much. Um, Ellie, my wife, particularly hates it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's um, I think it's a fantastic film uh, from a character point of view. Um, incredible. Anyway, yeah. I'm just thinking if I've got any other Stanley Kubrick films, and I, I've got 2001 on DVD. Yeah. Of course, we were thinking of doing Full Metal Jacket as part oh, of this yes, series, yeah, but we chose yeah. Platoon instead, yeah. uh, which is good because we probably wouldn't have done Paths of Glory, have, have mm. two Stanley Kubrick films. Yeah. Of course, he did another war film in Doctor Strangelove yeah. from 1964. That's one I don't like, really. Um, <laughs> do you know, I've, I haven't seen that all the way through properly. Yeah. I've only caught bits of it on TV, so I would like to see it properly. Yeah. Give it a chance. Uh, there's War in Barry Lyndon as well, I seem to remember. Oh, I haven't seen that. I don't know anything about yeah, it, actually. Is it 
17th century, 18th century. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. only seen it once and quite a long time ago. But I just remember this scene of English soldiers or French soldiers walking along, firing their guns. And of course, they'd have to spend ages to reload them and right. then getting shot, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I'd like to. It's on my list to see, of course. Mm. Again, because it's Stanley Kubrick. He did Lolita, of course, which oh, yeah. I, again yeah. I saw a long time ago. Yeah. A Clockwork Orange. Yes. Have yes. you seen that? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that. Oh, right. I o- remember, only uh, scenes because it's such famous... I only sought it out because it it was uh, banned in this country and then yeah. it comes out and you think, oh, well, I might as well see it. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I read the novel. I can't remember if I read it before or after. Yeah, yeah, and I really thought that was good just because right. of his inventive use of language. He mm. pretty much invented a sort of future slang. Yeah. And it's also it's a short novel, which is always good. Yeah. <laughs> now, I have to admit... Some ignorance here, but just looking into Paths of Glory and around it, Paths of Glory <coughs> stars Kirk Douglas. Yes, and I had no idea that Stanley Kubrick directed Spartacus. Yes, um, yeah. I, I've still seen Spartacus quite a few times on the TV. I don't own it. Yeah, um, it's you know it's a famous film. I just didn't know it was Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the one that sort of made his reputation. Because, yeah, well, it's his big Hollywood. Yeah, even Paths of Glory, I don't think was very popular when it came out. But it was, he had been, his films uh, up to that point had been not very popular with the public, but were yeah. critically acclaimed. Yes. Whereas Spartacus was more the sort of thing which, you know... Well, suddenly in... he had a big Hollywood budget. Yes. And, and it was kind of because of Paths of Glory. And Kirk Douglas was the creative driving force behind Spartacus. Yes. And he fired the original director and brought in Stanley Kubrick. Yes, Who, of yeah. course, he had worked, just worked with on Paths of Glory. And also, um, um, Kirk Douglas was pretty much instrumental in getting Paths of Glory made because yeah. there was a lot of resistance to its anti-war theme at the time. Yes, why? Well, <laughs> this is 1957, so still yeah. the war was pretty much um, a live issue, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, it was banned in France for a long time because yes. it deals with the French I, army. I think that's the main reason why, because mm. United Artists, who agreed to make the film, as you say, on the say on at the behest of Kirk Douglas didn't think it would sell in Europe mm. and the French wouldn't allow it to be filmed in France because yes, of the subject yeah. matter um, so he had to go to Germany mm. and they wouldn't show it for however many years yeah. afterwards and in fact Germany didn't show it either because they were building relations with France yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, after a couple of major squabbles so yeah that that was background well just to illustrate how live an issue it was i don't know if you saw there was a um one of our listeners linda sent in a uh, link to a youtube 17 minute uh, talk someone gave before a showing of paths of glory at oh, the right. university didn't see it all right uh, there was this uh, frenchman who gave the talk um and he w- he was very much interested in the issue of french military and their executions of their own people you right. know for he he found someone who had actually been involved in a sort of rebellion against officers. Yes. And the French army had a big mutiny, I think, in yeah. 1917 or something. So he was part of this, but uh, the the bloke giving the talk tracked him down in his 90s. Wow. And even then, when it came to interviewing, and the bloke said, turn off your tape recorder, <laughs> and then told him about it. Yeah. And he said afterwards, why did you ask me to turn off the tape recorder? And he said, oh, I don't want them to find me. And yeah. <laughs> And he said... Probably most of the people involved are dead, but it showed that yeah. the people you know uh, who were involved in this sort of situation were still scared of reprisals. That's and, amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah. Stanley Kubrick had made a couple of 
full-length films. As you say, they were very independent. No uh, but, budget, yeah. Um, but on the, on the strength of that, he was hired by MGM to come up with a new project. And he had read this book, um, from, which was written in the 1930s, I think. Yeah, 1935, I think. Yes, by um, Humphrey Cobb. Yeah. Um, and was, in fact, turned to a play of the same year. Oh, right. Okay. And was a flop. The same year as the book. Was yeah, 1935. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And Stanley Kubrick and his writing partner. The two people credited Jim Thompson. Yes. Who is actually a hard boiled noir writer. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> let me see. Uh, After Dark, My Sweet, The Killer Inside Me. Um, the, those are novels he wrote, but yeah. they turned into films. Yes. But, um, and there was also Calder Willingham. Yes. Calder Willingham. Yeah. Who was who also was also a novelist, but he was eventually more known for screenplay writing. writing. In yeah. fact, he worked on Bridge on the River Kwai, which we'll, we'll, I think we'll talk about. It's one of the films we're looking at. In fact, I think it's the last film we're looking at. Yeah. But uh, very interestingly, it came out just before Paths of Glory. I mean, a couple of months before Paths of Glory. What did? Uh, oh, the Bridge Kwai. on the River Kwai. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, swept the board at the Oscars and was a full colour of David Lean extravaganza. And then you've got this little right. black and oh. white film yeah. from... So it's interesting, very interesting from those two. And Calder Willingham was involved in both of those. Now, I think Willingham was not credited on River Kwai. He was one of the early draft uh, right. writers. Yeah. He also worked on The Vikings and Spartacus. That's his Willingham. Yeah. Yes, anyway, so MGM didn't want to make this film for the reasons we said. They didn't think it would sell in... Mm-hmm. Um, I might have said United Artists earlier. MGM didn't think it would sell. Right. Stanley Kubrick got Kirk Douglas interested, or he came across the script somehow, and Kirk Douglas at United Artists get the film yeah. greenlit. And in fact, now they gave him a budget, Kubrick, a budget of just under a million dollars. Oh, right. And 350,000 of that went to Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas. Wow. Which is, um, what's that? A, a, a third. Well, a third. Over yeah, a third, just over a third. Yeah. Mind you, you could say without him, the film wouldn't be made. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Kirk Douglas does seem to come across as quite a an idealistic person. You know, once he's got a cause, he seems to stick with it. Because, for instance, I think it's in Spartacus. He was instrumental in getting the writer who wrote the script credited because he was at the time he was blacklisted. For the, yeah, um, I mean that's another triangle actually. Because yeah. okay, Spartacus, that's right. And also, I think the two writers on Bridge on the River Kwai, the the credited ones who came in and sort of finished the script. Yeah. They, I think I'm right in saying they were blacklisted. I should check that fact. And one of the main actors in Paths of Glory was Adolphe Monjou, and he <coughs> testified at the House on American Activities Commission, yeah. in favour. He was very anti-communist, so <laughs> right. he was up there with John Wayne, sort of um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, being very patriotic, uh, which I think Kirk Douglas and he didn't. Right. See eye to eye on this right, film right. too well. I don't. I. I don't. I haven't read any particular stories of them coming up against each other, apart from yeah. the very opposite characters. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting the time, that that time in Hollywood and all this was yes. going on and making yeah. films in in that atmosphere. I must, I, say, I must say, I find that a fascinating era. Yeah. Every so often, I try and look for a book about it. You yeah. Know, some sort of interesting, not too heavy academic book, but you know. Can't seem to find one. Do you mean the McCarthy the Marquee, stuff? Uh, yeah, the whole sort of specifically, yeah. Witch hunter. So, what else can we say basically about the film? I've said it's 1957. I think it was right at the end. It came out in December 57. Yeah. 
Um, initially, when H. Cobb, I come from his, his first name, Humphrey. Humphrey Cobb. The novelist. Yeah. yeah Humphrey. When he um, sent it to a publisher, he didn't actually have a title. Right. Um, and the publisher held a competition to find a title. <laughs> um, Paths of Glory is actually a quote from a Thomas Gray poem, elegy written in a country churchyard. Right. Full line is Paths of Glory lead but to the grave. Ah, right. Yes. Oh, okay. That gives it some interesting context. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. I, I did read also there was a 1915 novel about the First World War called Paths of Glory as well. Oh, so, right. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that may have been written by someone Cobb as well, as a coincidence. Yeah. I might be misremembering. I'd only find <laughs> one other novel written by this Cobb, so. Um, yeah. And it didn't seem. I can't remember the title now. Well, the other big novel that I'm aware of, First World War, is All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, right. Um, have you seen... There was a film made of that in 1930. Have you seen that? Uh, no. I used to own it on DVD, um, and I think I, I had a cull of films. <laughs> I was on watching that often quite a while ago, and I think that yeah. went. Although I did like it. That's a famous novel by uh, Eric Remark, who was German, and it's from the German point of view. Oh, right. Now, I've, I've got a complicated link between All Quiet on the Western Front and... <laughs> I like these links, so yeah. please indulge me. Uh, although it's very obscure. Between All Quiet on the Western Front and Paths of Glory. Go ahead. All Quiet on the Western Front was written by Eric Remark. Yeah. Eric Remark married Paulette Goddard, right. an actress. Paulette Goddard was previously married to Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin, in 1923, made a silent film called A Woman of Paris, which... He wasn't in. Actually, he was in as a sort of most uncredited porter. And A Woman of Paris starred Adolphe Mongeau. Oh, right. <laughs> who, who is one of the main characters in Parts of Glory. Oh, yes. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything, Phew. but I like, I like these little, little tangled webs of intrigue and connection. Um, well, Adolphe Mongeau picked up a lot of his acting style from A Woman of Paris because A Woman of Paris wasn't very popular because people knew it was a Chaplin film mm. and wondered where the funny little man with the moustache was. Actually, it was quite a serious, dramatic film. It was a, a vehicle for Edna Purviance, his leading lady, uh, who had been his leading lady. And uh, so it was Edna Purviance and Adolf Mondew. And it was very naturalistic. For 1923, it's... Really understated acting. Yeah. And Adolf Mondew always remembered that. I think Chaplin had said to him, or, you know, his direction was, remember they're peeking, remember they're peeking at you. Yeah. So they, what he was saying was, you don't need to act big on the screen. This right. isn't a theatrical, because a lot of silent films were very theatrical. Yeah. Actors came from the stage and didn't really know how to act for film. Although by 1923, things were a lot more sophisticated. So, and I think that Adolf Mongeau was a big silent film actor, one of the best, best men in Hollywood, you know, voted <laughs> nine times, he was a real <laughs> suave character. But when talkies came in, he right. was out of work for a bit and then got back into movies. And, mm. and I think he probably did because he had this understated oh, right, aspect yes, to him. Uh, he yes. wasn't an overly theatrical, arm-waving, eye-rolling Yes. silent film actor yeah, although song. actually that that's that's a bit of a myth about a lot of silent films if you see it's true but also there are a lot of silent films that are very naturalistic yes and, yeah. but chaplin's 1923 was was one of the first he was very good at that yeah so anyway that was a, a bit of a silent <laughs> issue should we um yeah should we get into the film yeah well we, we could talk about i was just going to say actually keeping it 
more general, First World War films, yeah. we've mentioned All Quiet on the Western Front, compared to World War II films, yes. there's not that many. There are a number. Some of the ones I've heard of, there's a silent film called The Big Parade, which I own on video, which is very good. Yeah. About three soldiers, American soldiers, go off to war. And that's, it's mainly a love story, admittedly, but one soldier does come back with his leg amputated. It's a great moment in the film. I haven't seen it for a while, but if I remember correctly, I remember my heart giving a jolt. His family are waiting for him to come back, and then he comes back without a leg. And I don't think we know it until that point that he's actually lost his leg. So it's, it's, you know, for so close to the war, it's it's not a pro-war sentiment. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Blue Max, I remember seeing on TV a long time ago, which is about a German fighter race. That's 1966. The African Queen. Oh, yeah, it's Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, and... it's set in during the First World War. Yeah. Again, it's it's a backdrop. Yeah, yeah. The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, we were going to look at mm. for this, but I think we didn't, didn't make it onto our list. It's very difficult coming up with 10, because there's <laughs> lots of other good ones. Um, now, that's got... That's not purely World War One. It's, yeah. it's got some of it in. There's a silent film I haven't seen but really want to called Jacques, 1919 by Abel Gantz, who did one of my favourite films, Napoleon, which I right. saw uh, on the big screen this time last year at the BFI. And what's interesting about that is he made it during the war. So yeah. although it came out in 1919, some of it was filmed in August 1918. And he actually had a scene where it's the return of the dead, and he used real soldiers who were on leave. Oh, right. And they appeared in this film, and then they had got to go back to the war. And by the, you know, a month later, 80% of those who appeared in the film were dead, oh, which I think is just an astonishing, yeah. poignant aspect. Um, and, of course, another film we have looked at in our adventure film podcast was Lawrence of Arabia, mm, yeah, which is a First World War film, yes. and it is an action war film, but we put it as an adventure Yes, yeah. Um, what, what would you say about that? Well, I'd say that, <laughs> of course, it's it's happening on what we'd consider, in us Europeans, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would consider the periphery of the war, in that it's not yeah. in a an entrenched um, the Central Front. European, yeah, Western yeah. Front, where everyone's, you know, there's lots of heavy bombardments. It's on, mm. a, it's on a much larger area. And, yes, um, it was more of a political... Yeah. Thing. I mean, that's just reminded me actually saying getting away from the Western Front. Uh, there's also Gallipoli, which was a mm. Mel Gibson film, which I haven't seen and I'm not too keen on it actually. Yeah. But the thing with Lawrence of Arabia, it's the sort of situation where one man can make a difference because it's yeah. such a, you know, it's not a case of flinging hundreds of thousands of bodies at the mm. at the enemy. It's, you yeah. know, that was more um, guerrilla warfare. Yeah. But it seems like an adventure because it's more based around one man or a small group. Well, also it's got that romantic, to, again, to us uh, in the in cold, rainy UK, yeah. um, <laughs> and even not the cold, rainy Western Front, it's got that romantic Arabian Nights yes, yeah, <laughs> feel to yes, it. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, World War One. I. I mean, World War One is something also I'm a lot more interested in. I was talking to you earlier about the fact that the last film we did, Platoon, was Vietnam. Um, and I did struggle a bit with that because, A, I don't know anything really mm. about Vietnam, apart from what I looked into for the podcast. I I struggled to get enthusiastic about that um, era, yeah. just because of not having a connection. I think if you've yeah. got a connection with something, my interest in World War One comes partly through my our own family history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've researched almost about about 75 members of our own family, obviously quite 
widely spread who served in World War One. Yeah, uh, almost thirty of them who were killed, and it's a, I find it fascinating. Yes, yeah. Um, World War One was a war of empire. No, it's not like World War Two, which feels like a war of justice. Mm. Um, World War One seems like a complete waste. It was the kings who were all cousins <laughs> uh, <laughs> playing, you know, politics, playing with their colonies and empires. I do remember seeing this um, uh, two-part documentary about the the whole sort of spread out European royal family, mm. and how a lot of them made fun of the, uh, the bloke who the Kaiser. the Kaiser. Yeah, <laughs> and you think, God, how much of it is just sort of personal resentment against I your think, relatives? I mean, obviously that's not the only thing, but no. I think it had a lot to do with it. He Could was have. he was yeah. shunned by his cousins. Yeah, they were all grandchildren of Queen Victoria, weren't they? Mm. And he was shunned. He was made fun of. He had a withered arm, so he was. Yes, yeah. And he was quite uptight about that. Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating area of study. Anyway, let's get down, as you say, to Isles of Glory, particularly. Yeah. So it's set in France in 1916, yeah. and it starts out by telling us that I think there's a voiceover telling us that both sides, the French and the Germans, have been entrenched. The last two years, where neither has advanced more than a hundred yards either way, yeah. and quickly lose the any advantage they make, and it opens with a wonderful French aristocratic house, which is being used as, as a base of operations by the generals. Yes, um, and this is a, a contrast to what we come to <laughs> later, which is the trenches. But here we've got yeah. this luxurious apartment. We follow one general. I think this is. Now, I had a lot of problems um, trying to work out who was who, because I wrote down the cast list. Yeah. <laughs> and then everyone addresses each other either by their rank, general, yes. or the generals call each other by their first names, which yes. I didn't have. So, <laughs> Now listen, Paul. Yes. Yeah, so I'm going, <laughs> now, is this General Broulard or General Miro? And it turns yeah. out that um, Adolphe Menjou, who you talked about, is yes. General Broulard. He's yeah. the one who comes in with the plan. Yeah, he's a major general. He's oh. the most senior right. of the lot. So he says, you know, nothing's been happening for a while, so we need a push. There's this hill. I don't know if this is an actual hill, but they call it the Ant Hill. Yeah, I think that's... I, th I think in the book it's called the Pimple. Oh, right. So Ant Hill is something that Kubrick came up with. Ah, Although right. there may well have been an Ant Hill. Yeah. I don't know. And um, so he's talking to General Miro, who um, is quite a distinguished-looking man. He's got a scar on his cheek, which leads you to believe that he's seen action. Mm. Although, of course, it could be, you know, maybe he got it in a, a German... Um, college where they do jewels and try and oh, yes. earn scars just to look good yeah. <laughs> a real scar by the way oh is it yes this actor george mccready yeah was involved in a motor accident he was driving a model yeah. t ford and he went through the windscreen oh my gosh so i mean i was thinking gosh that's good makeup yeah. like in platoon yeah i was um, thinking that we were all wondering if yeah, that was Beringer the real one. Yeah, Beringer had that scar. I mean, of course, you were talking about the, the special glue. That, yeah. <laughs> but this is a real scar. So. Yeah, right. So Major General Broulard says to General Miro, we're going to take the ant hill. They say it's a key position, key to the whole German position in this sector. And Miro's reaction is that it's impossible. He says, yeah. no, you couldn't do that. Yeah. But Broulard, then Broulard says, okay. And then he <laughs> says, oh, by the way, we're considering you for... Basically a promotion. I can't remember how they put it, but it's yeah. you know, like, yeah. we're thinking of you for the 12th Division or something. <laughs> yes. And immediately this throws a different light on the whole situation. Miro says, well, you know, maybe we could take the anthill. <laughs> yes. It's quite a well-played scene because um, Broulard doesn't say, oh, this is dependent on you doing no, this. In, in fact, fact, he even says... says um, yeah, it's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. But 
you know, it will. <laughs> and the other thing, of course, is General Miro's insistence that this is impossible. Be a suicide mission, promotions and decorations mean nothing to him against the lives of his men. He's a real, mm. he's a, you know, he's a real war general. He's yeah. been there on the, with his men. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Roulard says, yes, well, of course, you know. Uh, anyway, nothing to do with that. But there's promotion. Oh, yeah, it's a shame a... you can't do the Antoine thing. I never said we couldn't do it. Or, <laughs> yeah. or something like that. It's uh, it is a very good scene. Yeah. Lots of walking about, which felt a little bit forced yeah. in this day and age. I mean, it, it wasn't quite as natural as I think it could yeah, have been. Right. Yeah, I didn't really think of that, but um... uh, I didn't on the second viewing. I didn't yeah. notice, but uh, yeah, and their medals clinking. Yes. <laughs> I tried to find out. I thought I'm going to find out what those medals are. Oh right! Wow. Um, not on General Brular, but just on Miro, because he's got four. I think yeah. only had two. <laughs> uh, and I found he's got the Legion d'honneur with Rosette. He seems to have the 1914-15 Cross de Guerre, which is the General War right. medal. This is during the war, of course, but there was a 1914-15 version. Oh, and right. I think they kept adding dates, because the war kept going <laughs> on. Right. Then he's got, I think, obviously this is in black and white and a little bit, I think he's got something called the Colonial Medal. Right. It doesn't have any clasps on it. Because basically, the thing that made me think this is, oh, where could he have got that scar? This is when I thought it was made <laughs> right. yeah. Was it some, you know, Franco-Prussian war in the 1870s? Was mm. it that long ago? Or, But as he doesn't have a bar on his colonial medal, there's no particular war medal. I couldn't find what the last one was, which was a, a sort of eight-pointed star. It may yeah. have been some foreign decoration that was awesome or something. So <laughs> anyway, that was just a little exercise to yes. look into the background of his character, but it didn't reveal much actually. <laughs> now, the thing that, that I got thinking about on this scene is that whenever you have scenes with generals discussing, you know, major moments of the war, which is going to result in loads of soldiers being killed, you always have the eating. Right. <laughs> I think it's a contrast. <laughs> you see these people. I mean, you know, the fat generals feeding <laughs> yeah. their faces. Well, oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And particular. I mean, I particularly remember this from Lord of the Rings. I think it's the Return of the King, where you've got Denethor. I think his name is, who's not a king, but he's in uh, Gondor. Yes. And he's eating really messily. Yeah. While his son is being sent out to die. That's like the yes. most extreme contrast. But uh, in this yeah. film and yeah. loads of films, you'll obviously generals eating. <laughs> Uh, in luxurious in settings. Pretty opulence, yes. And this is an incredibly luxurious manner, isn't it? There's, um, a little yeah. bit later, there's a, a scene there's some, in the background. I meant to look this out for this the second time I watched it and I forgot. In the background, there's two soldiers carrying this enormous painting. And I wondered, <laughs> I just wondered if it's some generals carting it off. Yeah. So no one will notice. Because obviously this is a place that's been requisitioned. Yeah. It, it could be being put away for safety, but I got... As everything else is still up, yeah. I got the impression that someone was perhaps just pocketing and a massive painting. Yeah, lost in the war. <laughs> yes. So anyway, we have an immediate contrast now with the trenches. Yeah. Uh, lots of long tracking shots in this, which is one mm. of the things which made me think, oh yeah, the Kubrick, you, yes. you can feel a director with ideas, cinematic ideas behind yeah. it. So you've got long tracking shots through the trenches. I think he used a lot, I always remember, I think, I was introduced to that in 2001, where you go round spaceships. Oh, yes, yeah, um, which is... Uh, and which is... The Shining, those hotel corridors. Oh, yes, yeah. Going back along them. <laughs> Just give me a, <laughs> a shiver thinking about it. Yeah. But, yeah, this is very different. Down the trenches. So, Moreau is now going to give the order, but he first goes through the trenches saying, saluting to the soldiers, saying, mm. oh, how are you doing? Yes, well done. Well, Shouldn't the first you... question he asks is, are you ready to kill some Germans? Yeah. And he's got the same question for everyone. Yes, yes. Like, it's just a mechanical thing. Yeah. He's not talking to the 
men as people. Yes. They're yes. just his number one, his number two. Ready to kill Germans, ready to kill Germans. And the three ger- sol- uh, French soldiers he meets are actually the three significant soldiers. Right, yeah. Later, which, of course, you might not notice just watching the film yeah. for the first time, as I didn't. Well, there is a, a thing. You don't actually follow those three three soldiers who are later singled out. Mm. We were originally going to see them mm. in the attack. Yeah. But that the reason that that didn't happen is because one of the actors was fired. Yeah. <laughs> they actually filmed the attack last of all, yes. so they couldn't include him in it. Well, let's talk about him as as we brought him up. Yeah. That's Timothy um, Carey. Timothy Carey, right? Uh, playing Private Firol, I think they yes. call him. Yes, yeah, Firol, yeah. Who I I looked at, I thought I'm sure I've seen him in other yes. films. Yeah. But I I looked through his um, filmography and none of them leapt out. No, but he's got maybe uh, his it's just voice this film. and everything yeah. looked familiar. But I couldn't place him either. So apparently he was a bit of a prankster. Yeah. To the point of maybe making himself rather annoying. Yes. The only one, the only prank I could find was that he staged a kidnapping yeah. himself. During the filming of this yes, film, yeah. yeah. Which is why I think that was the last straw. Yeah. Well, they waited until he'd filmed all of his speaking roles. Oh, and then okay. they sacked him. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, because they didn't have him for, as mm. you say, these the fighting scenes. Yeah. And also there's a scene where you just see his back... Later, yeah, there was a stand-in at one point yeah. they brought in. But it's also said that he was drawing a lot of attention to his character. Uh, and if you watch, he is, he's rolling his eyes. He's a bit weird. Yeah. But it works. Yes. Because the re- very reason he says he's been picked out as one of the soldiers to face the firing squad, which is what we'll get yeah. to in the plot, is because he's... He's a social, social outcast. Social undesirable, yeah. Yeah, so he's probably the weird one that no one's his friend yes. with, and that comes across. Yeah. And he was he was outcast from the film as well, for yeah. those reasons. But he is, he's he kind of, even in this first scene where General Miro is talking to him, he's mm. kind of half-closing his eyes and his head's wobbling and yeah. he's sort of smiling. But it fits with his character in the film. Yeah. And later, when he's walking towards... The firing squad. The firing yeah. squad. Yeah. He's the one who's crying yeah. and, and he is doing a lot of well, mean, you can't help but draw attention. But yeah. it, again, that was that him or I mean, it must have been in the script. Well no, it wasn't. Oh. I was gonna say actually he he was supposed to be completely silent. Really? Uh but he did this thing, I don't wanna die, I don't wanna die and biting the arm of yes. the priest who's holding thought on. It was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean that shows that you know, sometimes you get difficult actors, but they can produce results. Well, yes, those, those difficult yeah. geniuses. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if he's a genius, but <laughs> no, that made that scene much better because yes, yeah. it ramped up the tension. It invested you emotionally yeah. in that. I mean, we're skipping ahead here. But I it, forgot to say, by the way, spoilers. Oh, yes. In this film. <laughs> and by the way, talking of spoilers, if you've never seen this film... Yeah. And you buy it on DVD. I don't know what edition you got. I've got mine here. It only seems to be a sort of plain vanilla one. Have you got this one? Yes. And yeah. if you wonder what's going to happen to them, well, it's on the cover because there's a firing squad sh- firing. Oh, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <laughs> massive spoiler on the cover, which is a bit of a... Because oh. I, I couldn't remember whether they got shot or not. You know, that's the same with me. Yeah. I remembered... And I actually thought, oh, you, I thought, oh, maybe they'll get off. Yes. You know? And of course they don't. Yeah. And I'm glad they don't. I think that would ruin... Yes, I mean, it's part of the message, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I believe one of the producers said, they've got to get, you've got to change the script. They must get off, and Kubrick, or someone did write on alternative ending, but they didn't. Yeah, I heard that what happened is that they wrote an alternative ending, but he, rather than sending just the ending in to the producers, he sent the whole script again, thinking... They won't read it, oh, I see. and they didn't. So they managed uh, to get through, get approval for right. the ending that we yeah. saw. Yeah. Okay. So um, 
Moreau carrying on through, he also meets a soldier who's got shell shock. Yes. And this is a great scene where uh, Moreau says, there's no such thing as shell shock. I don't believe in it. Um, Snap yourself together and get this man out of my... Get this baby. You're a coward. Get this baby out of my regiment. Yeah. Standing next to him is one of the other... The soldier who speaks for him is the third soldier who gets picked out by the firing squad. And that is Joseph Turkle. Right, Private Arnaud. Yes. Arnaud. Um, so he gets uh, actually uh, the interesting thing about him did you recognise him and you probably know this but he was in The Shining oh yes yes yeah. so in he fact, played I the bartender in The Shining yeah, and he was also in Blade Runner that's the <laughs> yes. thing that clicked with me he played uh, Tyrell I'd forgotten that but I yeah. did recognise I actually recognised him as The Shining bartender yes. and then later saw the yeah, the Blade Runner connection which I didn't I didn't recognise him from that Yeah. Uh, just going through the cast because we've also met another character Richard Anderson who plays Major St Alban who is General Moreau's sort of orderly oh right yeah and I reckon did you recognize him during the film I thought I did I recognized him and I thought who is that he's so familiar (laughs) and of course he was Oscar Goldman in the six million dollar man yes who used to to have a doll yeah I used to have a yeah exploding suitcase yes I mean, that was a major part of our childhood, Six Million Dollar Man, so I was totally delighted to find that uh, that was him. Yeah, I wouldn't have recognised him. I, he did watching remind it, me of someone. I couldn't, yeah, I yeah. thought, I know him, who is he? <laughs> of course, I knew him much older in the 70s. Bionic Woman as well, not just um, yes, yes. Six Million Dollar Man, which we also used to watch. <laughs> yeah. And we'll just he meets three soldiers, he starts with three soldiers. The other one is um, Corporal Paris, played by Ralph Meeker. Hmm. So that's the three soldiers. Corporal Paris, Private Arnaud, and Private Ferro are the three soldiers we've just been talking about. Related to be singled out, yes. Yeah. So um, General Moreau goes to see our hero, Colonel Dax. Balticus. Yes. <laughs> yeah, played by Izzy Dembski. Is that his real name? <laughs> yeah, actually, his real name's Issa Danielovich. Oh. But he was known as Izzy Dembski because the family changed the name to Dembski when they came to America. But he became Kirk Douglas. Oh, I didn't know that. Parts of Glory, Spartacus, starring Izzy Dembski. Doesn't quite <laughs> got the same. Kirk Douglas, yeah, it's such a heroic name. Mm. It suits him, really. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose we're used to... Um, but used talking to... of Spartacus, we do, first of all, meet Kirk Douglas with his shirt off. Oh, right, yeah, yes, <laughs> Just, I did notice that. Yeah, showing his fine physique. Yeah, His fine yeah. 1950s physique. <laughs> So this is basically the, the same scene as we've just seen, where one general passes an order down to another. Yeah. Here, now, Major General to General, now it's General to Colonel. Yeah. And, of course, he gets the much more, um, much more realistic response, saying... Because, of course, now he hasn't got... There's no um, promotion to be dangled before no. him, he's saying. But he does threaten him, because he says, I'll send you... Because he refuses. Yeah. Uh, um, Colonel Dax is who Douglas plays, Colonel Dax. Yeah, and he refuses, and he says, oh, "Right, I'm putting you on leave." Yeah, and the worst thing for Colonel Dax is to be separated from his men. They they're yeah. going to go anyway, and if he's not there, he can't. Yes. He feels very responsible for them, so he agrees to it through gritted teeth, which is a huge contrast. Well, take the until. Yeah, because <laughs> he that basically shows us that he's got principles. Mm. You know, it's not a case of his own honour, but yeah. he, the men he's looking after, which yes. is what drives him. Now, there's a brilliant bit of dialogue here, I think, where Miro lists the sort of casualties they could expect. Oh, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's quite offhand. He's saying, 
Naturally, people are going to get killed. Um, they need to, to absorb bullets and shrapnel. Colonel, your regiment is going to take the anthill tomorrow. You know the condition of my men, sir. Oh, naturally, men are going to have to be killed. Possibly a lot of them. They absorb bullets and shrapnel. And by doing so, make it possible for others to get through. What support will we have? I have none to give you. What sort of casualties do you anticipate, sir? Mm, say, 5% killed by our own barrage. That's a very generous allowance. 10% more in getting through no man's land, and 20% more getting through the wire. That leaves 65% with the worst part of the job over. Let's say another 25% in actually taking the anthill, we're still left with a force more than adequate to hold it. General, you're saying that more than half my men will be killed. Yes, it's a terrible price to pay, Colonel, but we will have the anthill. But will we, sir? I'm depending on you, Colonel. All France is depending on you. Moreau was based on a real general called, my, my pronunciation may be off here, but General Revehac. Right. He was a real French general. Oh, right. Who the, the novel, Pass of Glory, was partially based on. Oh, right. Because he is the one who <clears throat> ordered artillery to fire on his own men who, wouldn't, who refused an order to um, do some impossible thing. Yeah. And they chose four men to be charged for cowardice oh, um, right. in that. And they were shot. Out of interest, the one of the wives of the men who was chosen by Lot and was previously a, an exemplary soldier, yeah, fought to clear his name. It took twenty years, and they were. It was ruled as an unfair execution in all four cases. And two of the families got nothing, and two of them got one franc. What? <laughs> Jeez. Now, the reason I spoke about that is because you were talking about the statistics. Another yeah. story about this general is that he ordered troops to relaunch an attack yeah. because the percentage of acceptable losses hadn't been reached yet. Really? And he didn't want it to show as if they hadn't tried hard enough. God. <laughs> so that ties in with the percentages yeah. you're just saying there. So that was a real, a real general. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Kind of thing that went on. I mean, the thing I, I know, whenever... You get military talk about casualties. It's always done at a sort of remove. You talk about percentages or, mm. you know, the main thing is with nuclear weapons, they talk about yield and you realise that yield means, <laughs> you know, percentage of, it, of people killed right, or you know, yes. millions of people killed. So it's a way of showing that he's not talking, he's just talking about, you know, percentage of a platoon where, mm. of course, each one is an individual man. Yes. And in fact, in this very scene, they talk about soldiers bunching up together naturally. And one of them says, you know, they're like animals. And then Colonel Dax, Kirk Douglas says, surely it's more of a human thing. Yes. Yeah. So the difference, he think, he sees them as humans, as people. Yes. Fear is natural. Yeah. <laughs> now, I can kind of understand in a perverse way, if you're a general who has to win a war. Yes. You perhaps have to see your men as yeah. just units mm. to be cast yeah. out and you're going to have this it, it's terrible and it's not right at all yeah. but i can see that point of view yes from their point of view the other th interesting aspect is the age of the generals you look at both uh, brular and miro they're yes. both old mm. and this happened in the uk as well you had a lot of generals who were just about to retire, or who had even long retired, were brought back for the First World War. Some of them were put into the field in charge of units. Right. Some were given desk jobs in, yeah. like in London or in Paris, wherever, which is a bit makes more sense. But some of them weren't. Some of them were put into the you know, in command of units because they were respected. But they'd learnt their trade in the 19th century. 
<laughs> when a bad day, I can talk about the British here, again, the Afghan war, which I mentioned a few times. Yeah. Well, a very bad day would be something like Rock's Drift or Maiwand, where you lose several, uh, probably not Rock's Drift, it's, it's Andalwana, where you lose, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, uh, <laughs> but, or Maiwand, where you lose almost a thousand men. That's, yeah. That was highly unusual. Uh, yeah. A loss would be more like the enemy would lose 2,000 and you lose 10. Right. That yeah. was normal. Yeah. Suddenly, the Boer War was starting to get a bit more mechanised and yeah. the numbers went up, but not bad. It was still a, a colonial war. Yeah. The First World War was very different. You had mechanised slaughter, <laughs> machine guns, artillery, and later tanks. Yes. Uh, and even aircraft. Gas. Um, but yeah, gas, yeah. but machine guns especially, especially oh. from the Germans, would cut down hundreds of men in minutes. Yeah. And they, this was a different world to these mm. old generals who knew nothing about it. So yeah. there they are sitting back behind their desks, pushing units around. Encounters, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they did learn, uh, but they weren't there. Mm. <laughs> General Miro just calls himself in this conversation with Kirk Douglas, a fighting general. Yeah. And the scar attests to that. Yeah. But it was probably 30 years ago. <laughs> yes, yeah. He also says a little bit of exposition, which does stick out as exposition, um, talking about Colonel Dax, that he was one of the foremost criminal lawyers in all of France. Oh, yes, yeah, that's an important uh, point for later, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> so what Colonel Dax does is he chooses, well, three men mm. to go and do a bit of reconnoitering. They go into mm. no man's land. I don't actually know what they're supposed to be doing because they don't actually achieve it. They go out a little way. Yes. No, I, I, I mean, I presume they've got to see that their way is clear, what's yeah. out there, what kind of resistance they might meet. But, yeah, yeah I don't, I'm not sure. So they're led by Lieutenant Roger, yeah. Yeah. Uh, played by Wayne Morris, um, and he chooses um, Corporal Paris, who, um, is he one of... He's one of the three. Yeah, yeah. another one called Lejeune, yeah. um, who gets killed. So Lieutenant Roger is a bit... Bit of a coward, basically. And a drunk. Yes, yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, he's been drinking, the implication is he's been drinking to um, get prepared for this night mission. Oh, right. So they go out and they get into a uh, sort of pit. No Man's Land is basically um, just uh, destroyed Earth, as we see it, because it's Very good, night. though. Yeah. Uh, so th this film's shot in black and white. Yes. In an era when uh, many films, if not most films, I'm, most films, I'm sure, were shot in colour. Mm -hmm. So as you, if you... Compare it with Bridge on the River Kwai, which was gorgeous, yeah, technicolour, so widescreen. Yeah. yeah, but it's. I'm glad this wasn't made in colour. Mm. It's. It's got the feel of actual World War One photographs. Yes. Yeah. And the No Man's Land is incredibly detailed. Mm. It really looks like what was actually yeah. there. Yeah. There's a brilliant moment where they're hiding in No Man's Land, and flares are shot up, mm. come down little parachutes, and the light illuminates dead bodies yes which you, you didn't see, see them before and suddenly you realize they've been walking did you see the crashed airplane yes yeah, yeah so there's yeah. a crashed airplane and there's there's bodies everywhere and then they disappear as the lights mm. as the flares fade yeah so we get a sort of similar situation here to as was in platoon where you've got um lieutenant roger sends yeah. one of his men lejeune yes. lejeune 
Jean. Lejeune. Okay, we'll call him Lejeune. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, sends him ahead. Might be Lejeune. And then immediately he starts panicking because he's not got sent a signal back. Yes. And he says, right, that's it. He's being spotted. We're going to go. And he yeah. throws a grenade. Well, the other guy says, we haven't given him enough time yeah. yet to go Corporal Paris. Yeah. But Lieutenant Roger throws a grenade and runs, <laughs> saying, yes. that's it. We've done our mission. <laughs> uh, Corporal Paris actually goes ahead and finds Lejeune mm. dead. And I think it's pretty clear that he's dead from the grenade. Yeah, in fact, but, he's um, still smoking. Yeah. And I don't mean in the um, yeah. <laughs> tobacco yeah. way. <laughs> so here, just like in Platoon, we've got someone, we've got Corporal Paris, mm. who knows that Lieutenant Roger is responsible for uh, killing one of his own men. Yes. And yes. so is a danger to <laughs> Lieutenant Roger. Yeah. Similarly, in Platoon, of course, we had one of the sergeants, yeah, Beringer, yeah, who um, actually killed Willem, Willem Defoe's character. Yeah. And, of course, our hero knew he'd done it. And yes. um, Beringer knew he knew. You yeah. know? <laughs> but in this case, of course, it, it later turns out, I mean, Lieutenant Roger, knowing that Corporal Paris knows, yeah. puts him forward for the, uh, you know, the to be singled out for a cowardice. Yes, revenge. Uh, but this is just setting that up. And, of course, it, it's Lieutenant Roger is actually a bit of a coward, isn't he? Yes, and he's the yeah. one also who doesn't charge out of the trench. When they charged the yes anthill. B Company, yeah, and it's ironic because the actor Wayne Morris uh, won four DFCs in World War Two as a really? pilot. He was oh, a gosh. he was a very well decorated and brave soldier, <laughs> but he you wouldn't he plays yeah. all, the acting in this film is brilliant. Yeah, um, there's there's a cup no um, there's a couple of maybe minor ones, but I don't think so. No. Uh, everyone's really good, and there's a lot about Kirk Douglas who was a very grandiose, over-the-top actor, right. was very understated, or understated for Kirk Douglas, perhaps, in this film. Right. Uh, which which um, people tend to say is a very a good thing, and it is. He, he's very good. Um, Adolphe Monju and George McCready are very good. Yes. Both of those. The one thing that surprised me when the film started is, you know it's French soldiers, and then there's all these accents. Adolphe Monju is almost... <laughs> I mean, he's American, actually, but um, obviously with French ancestry. But he comes across as an almost British accent. <laughs> and yeah, then later you've got sort of, yeah, all kinds of American parts. There's a bit where one of the soldiers is saying to the others, uh, you know, I've been made poisonly responsible. You've got to do your duties. <laughs> it's it's yeah. quite funny. He's yeah. this French soldier. All right, now. <laughs> I was going to say one more thing about the reconnaissance scene. Right. When they go over the top, these woodblock drums come in. Oh, right. And I immediately went, ah, Kurosawa. Really? Now, I know I'm a big Kurosawa fan, so yeah. I look for that kind of thing. But not only did I suddenly, that music, that, 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 those drums yeah. remind me of Kurosawa, but suddenly I thought, oh my God, this whole film is like, very much like a Kurosawa film. Yeah. There's, there's not just the, the woodblock drum type thing noise which is very was quite yeah. Japanese yeah but also it's a 1950s film which was the golden era for Kurosawa made in black and white he yes. made his films <laughs> in black and white right up until 19 the early 70s but also the story it's a fairly humanitarian yeah humanistic story yes and also the action is very much driven by character yeah. and those are all Hallmarks of what makes a good Kurosawa film, which yeah. is pretty much all Kurosawa films. <laughs> and I thought this was really yeah, Kurosawa, right. and even Kirk Douglas, you could you could make an argument for being uh, on a par with uh, Toshiro Mifune, yeah, to yeah. some degree. Yes, you know? yeah. But anyway, 
Um, it was it was really those drums as they went over. It went, yeah. And I thought, oh, Kurosawa. Uh, Gerald Fried or Freed, I don't know how you pronounce him. Is the uh, composer on the? Oh film. right, right. Yeah, not a name I know. Yeah. So the next major scene is going over the top. Yes. Yeah, you know, where they go out the trenches. Um, significantly, Colonel Dax is the one who leads the charge. Yes, the charge is preceded by Colonel Dax walking through the trenches uh, yes. in, I think, some astonishing scene. And it is quite famous in the film anyway, but it really does stand out. I mean, this is Kirk Douglas in full right, we're ready to go mode. <laughs> yes. Walking along the duck boards. I don't know how they got the camera so smoothly oh. along those, but, um, I mean, it was obviously some kind of, I don't know, film terms, a dolly shot. Yeah. Um, I guess he was on some kind of cart or something being yeah. pulled along. And they didn't have a big budget, we know, but it's still, it's a long shot. Mm. And the soldiers, there's there's shells landing, so there's explosions, there's dust. The uniforms of the soldiers, they have been there for yes, you know, a year, yeah, or at yeah. least several months. Entrenched is the word. They're in, actually yeah. in trenches. They're literally entrenched, uh, but they're, they're covered in mud. They're fantastic, and it reminded me of, got two, there's two comic albums by Tardy. Mm. who's a French comic artist. I can really recommend these. They're both First World War comics. Uh, one's called God Damn This War, in English, of course, and the other, it was The War for Trenches, are amazing. Very anti-war yeah. um, war comics. Yeah. Um, it's Tardy, so they're masterfully drawn and written. But it, this Tardy and Kubrick look the same in, this, in these trenches. Right, they're, right. they're astonishing. Yeah. The, the uniforms are fantastic. But that scene is brilliant. Mm. I don't think he says anything, does he? He's just walking along. Yeah, which it's, is a contrast you see the soldiers. to Miro doing his faults. Um, yeah. You know, well done, soldier. If I guess yeah. they, they flip because you see it from Colonel Dax's point of view. So you see the men looking at him and shuffling. and Yeah. They're just ready to go over the top. Mm. Um, and then it, it flips to actually see him walking towards us yeah. in reverse body shot and... Yeah, worth mentioning because it's yeah. fantastic. Visual highlights of the film, I think. But then that's followed by another visual highlight. Yeah, well, this is an amazing scene. It's yeah. such a long... You basically follow them going over no man's land. Mm. Soldiers dropping all the time. We're basically following Kirk Douglas. Mm. But if you see a soldier anywhere around him, you watch them for long <laughs> enough, they fall. Yes. You know, <laughs> Which sort of adds to his own heroic. Yeah. I've always wondered, you know, it seems strange that the... The officers only have a pistol, you know. I suppose it's much more of a short-range weapon, yeah. so it implies that they'll be at the front, but it's a much less effective weapon, targeting-wise, mm. for instance. Mm. Yeah. But uh, Yeah, I guess they need their hands to fill out forms more or something. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you're right, this is yeah. another amazing scene, uh, and you really get to see Stanley Kubrick's No Man's Land, which was yeah. some field in Germany, just outside Munich, that he yeah. spent a long time digging up and shoveling and... And littering with clothes yeah. and bodies and stuff. Yeah. And it looks the part. You, could, mm. you wouldn't know that it's a film set at all. I mean, I mean this not... scene has been cited as a key influence on uh, Spielberg's um, ah. uh, Saving Private Ryan, Landing of D-Day. Oh, right. And of course, yeah. Spielberg you know, really liked Kubrick. They were friends. Yes. And of course, he finished his oh, AI project, AI, didn't I? Of course, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Well, <laughs> yes. That was me, not Kubrick. Um, there's a great bit where... It focuses on a body for a bit. And I just thought, 
It's his arm come off. You didn't get time to see because an explosion yeah. goes off and the camera shoots up with the explosion. Yes, I saw that. Yes, which yeah. I thought was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, we see General Miro, who is behind the scenes, yeah. um, getting the fighting general. Yeah, is uh, standing at the back. He's starting watching. to get hysterical. <laughs> why haven't they? Why haven't they? Well, done because it one yet? battalion has stayed in the trench. Yeah, and this is the one commanded by uh, Lieutenant Roger. Yeah, they're called Roger? B Company. Right. Uh, yeah. Who who is the the drunk from? Yes. Earlier. Yeah. Drunk coward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they haven't advanced. Kirk Douglas's character goes back. He says, "Where are B Company?" And yeah. he starts to go back to find them and lead them in a charge. But mm. meanwhile, General Moreau says, "Why aren't they going?" He gets hysterical and he starts. Uh, he gives the order for them to be um, bombarded, mm. just to drive them forward. Yeah, by the French artillery. Yeah. He gives given the coordinates. The artillery commander calls back and says, "Sorry, those coordinates are our own men." Yeah. Confirm. They say, yeah. yep, those are right. Confirm. And then, quite rightly, the um, battery commander says, battery commander Rousseau um, says, I can't do that unless I have a, it in writing. Because hmm. he, he later points out, what happens if he did it and then General Moreau was killed? Yeah. Then it would seem, you know, they'd have no proof that it yeah. was a, you know, a command. Very good point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's good to sh- good to see that not everyone can be browbeaten by a sort of hysterical general. You yes, know? yeah. By this, I mean, it, it's already clear that they're not going to take the ant hill, but this just sort of underlines the fact that it's... It was know, impossible yeah. from the start, because they didn't actually, as we learn later, they didn't even reach the German wire. They they barely got out of their own... Yeah. Past their own wire. Yeah. It was... And it what would really it really was that hundred of... Yeah, a few meters, as yeah. someone said later. <laughs> if they'd thrown another, you know, half of their men at, them, yeah. what would it have done? Just killed more men. Yeah. But anyway, uh, of course, uh, Miro's thinking of his promotion. I think uh, well, yes. maybe more saving face once he's agreed to do it. He says, "If these little sweethearts won't face German bullets, they'll face French ones." <laughs> oh, and afterwards, yeah. So we we get it finished. Um, uh, Colonel Dax goes to meet General Miro, and Dax points out that it was an impossible mission. Whereas, uh, and then Miro says, if it was impossible, they'd be dead. Yes. Meaning that the only way to prove it impossible was to try it and fail, yeah. rather than to say, no, we're not going to do it, or yeah. to give up. You can't win. Yeah. So General Moreau then say, decides he's going to kill 100 men mm. in um, retaliation. He wants a charge of cowardice brought against the regiment. Yeah. With 100 men shot. Tried and executed, yeah. This is at a meeting now with Dax. And Brulard. Yes. Brulard tries to talk him down to 12. And then somehow, I can't remember, we get down to three representative men. From One from each battalion. Yes. Yeah. Apparently, I think this is right. In the real event this is based on, there were supposed to be, now, I might have got this wrong, I think there maybe it's supposed to be five. Uh. But one of the commanders refused and ran off. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think because he had good connections, they said, oh, "Okay, we'll leave him. We'll just make it four. Yeah. So, so three soldiers are chosen. Yeah. Most of them are chosen by lot, which is apparently the traditional. Well, actually, way of doing no. It. I was going to say one. Yeah. One is chosen for revenge. Oh yes. So yeah. Roger yeah. chooses Corporal Paris because Paris has knows that he killed one of his own men with that yes, grenade. Yes, yeah. So that's so a way... A convenient way convenient. of getting rid of him. One man Private is, Ferrol is socially undesirable. He's the socially undesirable. And then the other one is just chosen by lottery, which yes, is perhaps yeah. the fairest. <laughs> but also, he, he turns out fair. to be the one who's got a record of heroism. He's yes. got medals. Yes, but, so um, it's, um, yeah. it's unfair. The fairest method to be chosen if you're going to, but actually unfair. So they're charged with cowardice in the face of the enemy. This is something I think we've come across in, I don't know if it's all the films, but I'm always surprised when 
we come across it, uh, how you can charge people with murder in a war or yeah. cowardice. I mean, it's it's such a weird situation that mm. normal laws just don't apply, do yeah. they? Yeah. Um, and the idea of shooting your own men, it's like shooting yourself in the foot. But again, <laughs> the only, I mean, normally you'd sack someone from a job they don't do well, but... Mm. That's probably what most of the soldiers would have wanted. Well, they actually talk about shooting men being good for the morale of the company. Yes. Which I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I guess if you let them off, it's... um Good for the discipline of the company. I think yeah. that's what they mean. Yeah, well, that's what they're saying. If you let people off, then no one will, do, no one will follow orders. No one will do anything. <laughs> now, during the actual First World War, thousands of soldiers were sentenced to death. Mm. for either cowardice or desertion or throwing their weapons down and running away, and some for murder or even rape. Yeah. But leaving those murder and rape ones aside, because those are criminal things, the cowardice and desertion, quite often they were just people who had cracked. Yeah. Either shell shock, which was recognised, but not by everyone, as we saw General Moreau says, no yeah. such thing as shell shock. But it was a recognised, it was also treated as an actual... Yeah. Um, uh, Probably depending on thing. how obvious the symptoms were. Yes, yeah. If it's just mental, then... Well, there was a lot of discussion as to whether it was mental, uh, psychological, or whether it was actually a physical, a shell going off next to your head and it it having a bleed on the brain, uh, and therefore right. affecting you. So was it uh, physical or was it psychological? So there was that debate then, and they, uh, you know, people accepted psychological yeah. reasons. But you did have people who couldn't stop shaking, for instance. And there's yes. no arguing with that. Oh, if someone just says, I can't face it, yeah. you know, what do you do? Yes. And <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, it's accepted now. Mm. So out of thousands, the, this is some stats out of interest. The British had 306 people executed in World War One for those kind of right. things. In 2006, <coughs> they were pardoned, but the... Interestingly, the sentence was not quashed. They were just pardoned. Right. So, in fact, John Major apparently said uh, before that that they couldn't be pardoned because it would be a... What does that say about the honour of the men who actually fought? So even as late as when he was in power, mm, mm. there was he was still sticking to the fact that, yeah, well, they were cowards. Yeah. So it was only in 2006 that, that a new army act was passed that yeah. pardoned them. And there is actually... A, a memorial to those who were shot. In the French army, which is the one we're talking about with this film, 600 to 650 men were executed for military disobedience. Mm. Which is amazing. Some were pardoned after the war. There's this one story I read. There was a soldier who trousers, his issue army issue trousers were in absolute rags from the fighting. And he wanted some new trousers. And he was told to take the pair off a dead body. They were covered in blood and he refused. Um, and he was sentenced to death oh to be God. shot. But he was actually, I think he was pardoned. Uh, he was, um, it didn't actually get. Right. Oh no, he was, he was shot, but he was pardoned after the war. So too late. I think that's a, a standout case. Yeah. Most of them were, were cowardice and things. Although, as you say, cowardice is a very debatable point. Interestingly, so British 306, French 650, Germans, although 150 death sentences were given, yeah. only 48 soldiers were executed. Mm. Although, confusingly, on another source, it says only 18 were executed. Um, I'll go with 48, because that was from a German newspaper. Right. The Spiegel. But look at those numbers. Yeah. The Germans were actually a lot less brutal yes. on their own men than the 
British and the French. I mean, the French may have been more... Like, they had the most to lose. In yes, a way, so they may yes. have been more highly strung, if I can put it like that, about mm, the whole thing. They yeah. really were... Because this was on their home turf. Yeah, I mean, they were fighting for their lives much more than the British were. The British, obviously, they yeah. were. They were yeah. over there. But it's it's that little bit closer to home. Mm. I'm not excusing it at all. I mean, it, it's an insane situation. Yes. If you think of another war film and novel, Catch-22, right. which is all about yeah. a bloke saying he, he pretends to be mad <laughs> yeah. to get out of the army, but they yeah. say, well, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> you'd be mad just to... You'd be mad not to want to get out of the army. So the yes. only way to get out of the army by being mad is by not being mad and wanting to be in the army. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's an insane situation. <laughs> okay, now where do we get to in the story? Well, we um, have the trial now. Yes, and um, luckily the France's foremost yes. criminal lawyer is on hand to defend his three soldiers, which is... But he's not in front of... France's foremost criminal judges. No. <laughs> Basically, he's in front of people. I don't know. I mean, obviously, they, they would know how to carry these things out, but it mm. seems as though it's pretty much a trial that's being rushed through. It's already been mentioned at the previous <clears throat> meeting with Adolphe Monjou and, and McCready. McCready, yeah. Um, <laughs> but what will the media think? Ah, yes. Um, yeah. you know, we've got to do something. What will the media think if we don't? Yeah. Basically, he he wants to deflect criticism of the generals mm. and put it onto the men. Yeah, we've got to do something. Yeah. He says so. So this is the solution: is is to scapegoat the men, and mm. it's a show trial. Yeah. And in fact, there's no stenographer to yeah. record what's said, and and Kirk Douglas complains about that. That's not proper. Yes. Not procedure. Procedure. So I mean, yeah. basically, these three men are being trialed for crime <laughs> of their their whole platoon. Yes. Whereas um, Kirk Douglas's character is trying to defend them as individuals. Yeah. But because they're being tried for a crime of the platoon, yeah. the indi individual defence is immediately um, matter, discarded. So yeah. one of them's got a record of heroism. Mm. That doesn't matter. Yeah. So really... He's, and he's... the other one was kind of asked, why did you turn back? Yeah. And the point is made that... Everyone else was turning back. Yeah. yeah. Well, why didn't you charge the anthill by yourself? Kirk Douglas yes. uses as a as a pretty good defence. Yeah. But again, that's the individual. Mm. Um, so really, it's it's almost like they're on two different planes. Mm. You know, he's defending the individual there. Um, I really like the character of Corporal Paris and his whole demeanour. Yeah. He's kind of in the middle of the other two, the hero and the social outcast, let's call them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in this scene, now he he was in the company, of course, he's in Roger's company, who didn't go out. Yes, yeah. But he says a body fell on him and he was unconscious so that he doesn't know. Yes. And he says, well, the judge says, or the jury member says, have you got any witnesses? He says, no, um, I do have this cut on my head. He says that wound could have been self-inflicted. And his response is just, he kind of struggles and goes... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But his whole his whole demeanor, I kind of yeah. like. It's he's not arguing or crying or yeah. not. It's, anyway. it's like he's got so used to the insanity of the situation. Yeah. that he's given up yeah. fighting. Yeah. <laughs> so they're found guilty. There's no real sort of definite pronouncement. It's they're waiting around yeah. in the um, you know under guard. Yeah, in this barn or whatever, and they kind of well, they've they... still got hope. That's the worst thing. They yeah. think, oh, we might get a pardon. Yeah. They is there any news? And they say, oh, sorry, I've got no good news. In fact, I'd expect the worst. There's no yeah. sort of, oh, yeah, you've been found guilty. But in that situation, you cling to the slightest bit. That's what mm. Private Farol, he, he seems to be the most um, upbeat 
Yeah. But it's when they get the definite no that he really starts howling. You know? Yeah, he says, I'm going to get out of this. And he's got confidence in Colonel Dax. Yeah. He'll get me out of this, he'll get me out of this. And when it's no, he's he just yeah. sort of wails. Yeah. There's, There's a great scene where they've learnt that that's mm, it. Yeah. And um, Corporal Paris looks at a cockroach yes. and says, tomorrow morning I'll be dead. That cockroach will have more contact with my wife and child than I yeah. do. And then Private Faroe squashes it yeah. <laughs> and says, oh, you've now, now you've got the edge on him. Yeah, yeah. It's a very poignant moment, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also uh, General Moreau sends them a nice meal, mm. their final meal, and it's just hypocritical really isn't it yeah none of them can really eat it <laughs> no well and and, and similarly with, when the Faroe priest suggests it might even be poisoned to make yes. them groggy so they can't think clearly uh, and a priest comes along and even that's something we can't really comfort them because not all of them are religious you in know fact only what in fact only Faroe is is there sort of yes brain. yeah so what happens next is private arno gets a bit um combative over the priest and yeah. He and Corporal Paris have a brief fight. Mm. Um, Private Arno falls back against the pillar and fractures his skull, yeah, actually. So he's uh, almost dead, but of course they're still going to shoot him. So they yes. basically got to tie him to a, a stretcher yeah. to take him out there. Yeah, they say, What can we do? He says, My own advice is to tie him tightly so that when you put him upright, he doesn't fall <laughs> yes. off. And pinch his cheeks because the general wants him awake when yeah. he's to be shot. Uh, it's, it's the stupid thing about in, when people have the death sentence, they've got to be well enough to be killed. <laughs> mm, yeah. So next, they're taken out. Yeah. Well, there well, is a scene before that where there's a dance oh, yes, with the generals. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, and there's women and the generals. It's a dress affair. They're mm. all very uh, nicely dressed. And Colonel Dax has... Been told by Battery Commander Rousseau. Yeah, we should yeah. actually also mention... On where the bit where Rousseau comes to him to give him the information about the artillery, ah, yes. he also, Dax has just spoken to... Lieutenant Roger. Yeah, to say, I want you in charge of the firing squad. Because he knows the story yeah. of, he's been told by Paris that, that, he's, uh, that he killed one of his own men. Yeah. And he knows that he's going to give him the job to command the firing squad to put on their blindfolds. And yeah. of course he doesn't want it because he's yeah. a coward. But also he's going to have to look... Yeah. Paris in the eye. Yes. Uh, but yes, then Rousseau comes and gives Colonel Dax the proof that General Miro, Miro ordered the artillery to fire on his own men. Yeah. Um, Which is a way out at this point, because if they yeah. can say that Miro was at fault, yes. then surely they can get... Uh, yeah, this is this is where you start to think, oh, maybe they will be let off mm. the execution. Yes, definitely yeah. you do, yeah. <laughs> There's a glimmer of hope. That the uh, ballroom, uh, the ballroom scene mm. reminds me of. That's something that seems to, to turn up in Kubrick films. I mean, you've got the ballroom scene early on in Eyes Wide Shut. Yes, I bet you've got one in Barry Lyndon. Um, <laughs> it just seemed to remind, and of course, um, in The Shining, you've got the, the ghostly ballroom, as it were. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just one of those things. This big spectacle and classical music just yes. makes you think of Kubrick. Yeah, you know? <laughs> just seems a characteristic moment. Yeah. I know it's obvious, but the the difference between the chateau and the trenches yeah. is so stark. It's fantastic. Mm. You, you, those are really the only two locations. Yes, mud and marble. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. and it really you couldn't. They're probably only a few miles apart. I don't know. Yeah, uh, they must be because it shows that there are two worlds existing right next to mm. each other. Mm. So Dax has now got these sworn statements from everyone who was involved mm. and who made a statement. And he goes and sees 
and uh, Major General, General uh, Brulard. Brulard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't remember actually now what happens as a result of that. Um, well, um, in fact, Dax kind of talks to him, and he's quite subtle about it because he just talks to him generally about yes, trying to get the right. men off. You don't really believe all this, do you? Oh, come, Dax. Let's not go over all that ground again. Though uh, I must admit that, judging from the casualties, the efforts of your regiment must have been considerable. How can you understand that and allow these men to be shot tomorrow? Oh, come, Colonel, you're choosing to take a rather simple view of this thing. The attack was impossible from the start. The general staff must have known that. Colonel Dax, we think we're doing a good job running the war. You must be aware of the fact that the general staff is subject to all kinds of unfair pressures from newspapers and politicians. Maybe the attack against the anthill was impossible. Perhaps it was an error of judgment on our part. On the other hand, if your men had been a little more daring, they might have taken it. Who knows? In any case, why should we have to bear any more criticism of the failure than we have to? Aside from the inescapable fact that a good many of your men never left the trenches, there's the question of the troops' morale. Don't forget that. The troops' morale? Certainly. These executions will be a perfect tonic for the entire division. There are few things more fundamentally encouraging and stimulating than seeing someone else die. I never thought of that, sir. Well, you see, Colonel, troops are like children. Just as a child wants his father to be firm, troops crave discipline. I see. And one way to maintain discipline is to shoot a man now and then. May I ask, do you sincerely believe all the things you've just said? It's been a pleasure discussing this with you, Colonel, but I'm afraid that I'd better be getting back to my guests. And it's perfect timing. He reveals what he's got about Miro. Just as Brunard is going back into the, the door. Room. Yeah, yeah. He slams the door shut. What? So now Brunard has got this information. But he doesn't, he doesn't, well, act, on he doesn't it. act on it then. And, no. and in a way, it's got no bearing on the case of cowardice. Yeah. It just goes to show that Miro is not a great character. Yeah. And there's a scene later on that explains exactly what General Brulard thinks Dax is up to. But we'll come to yes. that later. Yeah. <laughs> so next we have them going out onto the, the mm. to face the firing squad. Yeah. There's a lot of soldiers around and there's a long walk up to these three pillars. And again, this is all shot in front of the chateau. Mm. Um, so that, the opulence of the background, and the, these are these men who have been in the trenches have to walk in front of all this. The generals, yeah. the media, their own battalion are there. Yeah. Colonel Dax is there. Fantastic. It's quite, it's quite a scene. We've already talked about the fact that Faroe social yeah, breaks outcast down. breaks down and how he was improvising, as you said. I mm. didn't know that, but it really works. I love the fact he's all over the place. He doesn't want to do it himself. He's, he, yeah. he does. He sort of bites the sleeve of the priest. Yeah. It's fantastic. You've, you've got to have... I mean, this reminded me a lot of one of my favourite films, which is The Name of the Rose. Yeah. That ends with three people being... They're about to be burnt alive, actually, in a similar trial. I mean, they've been accused of Satan worship. They're yeah. monks. <laughs> yeah. But there you also have... A tall idiot one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he reminded me of um Thoreau. Yeah. And he's the one who starts sort of crying like a child, you yeah. know. I can't remember. Oh he starts singing actually, he goes insane or something. Right. Anyway, that sort of reminded me of this scene. You've always got yeah. to have three people to be shot and they have different reactions to death. Yeah. So one we've, is we've got Corporal Paris who's very stoic and mm. kind of accepted his fate. If there's a good scene before that where they're about to be taken out where he does break down. Yeah. It's very good. Um, he's trying to keep it together, and he he, he asks for a drink. He asks for a drink. And he yeah. says, "Oh, did you know I haven't had a single sexual thought?" Yes. which makes him laugh, and then that turns into crying. Yeah, and the commander of the patrol who's going to take yeah. them out says, 
This is the last decision you'll make yes, on Earth. Yeah. You can either get up and walk out there like a man or we'll drag you. And that does bring him to, he says, yeah, he thinks to himself, obviously, that's right. The last thing I'm doing, I'm going out anyway. Mm. And he decides to choose some kind of dignity. Yeah. If, if there is such a thing in this situation. It's, a, it's an awful situation because you know that everyone, every other soldier is thinking, it w- could have been me, but yeah. it's not. And yeah. it's almost like they cannot share these three people's... Mm. And in fact, they almost got the opposite. They they're relieved that these people are dying rather yes, than them, and God. it's horrible. But thank God, it's yeah. me instead of instead of you know hanging yes. band aids. Um, uh, <laughs> yes. And to think that this actually happened. This, mm. this is it's, it's a great story construct as yeah. far as tension and character and drama go. But this actually happened. Yeah. It's awful. Makes you realise. But this is a great scene. They get tied on one in a stretcher yeah. and they do pinch his cheeks and he wakes up and obviously just sees a firing squad in front of him yeah. luckily he passes out again uh, he's unconscious by the time they yeah. fire Lieutenant Roger has to offer them blindfolds I was thinking you know you wouldn't really want the, your last moments to be sort of covered but anyway uh, I mean it's such a situation and he, he actually he goes up to Corporal Paris and says do you want a blindfold mm. and he manages to say sorry I mean mm. what could you say in that situation I know but, uh, that, I felt that felt quite hot. Uh, I don't know if it's heartfelt, but um, I felt that was a little bit emotional. Scene, yes, actually. yeah, yeah. He says, "I'm sorry." The way he says it is very good. Yeah, but again, it's Too like, thank, "Thank God it's you." Um, yeah, but he knows he's done wrong. I don't mm. know if uh, that changes his character in any way. It's an awful situation to be in as to whether you have to be a coward or not at all, <laughs> whether you yeah. are or whether you are a coward. Then the shot. Yep. And General Moreau says <laughs> the men died wonderfully. Yes. <laughs> yes, a very good very good death, I thought. Yeah. Men died wonderfully. Yeah, it's almost, yeah. So again it's a meal between Yes, um, the three Dular and Moreau. Roulard and Dax. And Dax up. is invited, much to the surprise of General Moreau. Yeah. And Brulard brings up the fact of his training the artillery on his own men, which yeah. he doesn't admit to, but yeah. he is obviously shocked to know it's out. Yeah. He accuses Dax of being a traitor yes. to him personally, not yeah. to this time not to any kind of flag of France or yes. the army, but yeah. to him. And he says, so I'm to be the goat, am I? Uh, yeah. The only completely innocent man in this whole affair, yeah, he says. Yes. And that did make me think, although he's not, because he's, he's evidently a, a mm. bit of a bastard, he is also a victim of the situation. He's been yeah. given the order to make them. He did say at the start, this is impossible. Now, his weakness was, was that he was off for promotion and changed yeah. his mind. Not like Kirk Douglas. Yeah. But, so he does, the only completely innocent but man. But he did say, let's bombard our own men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, he's the one responsible for that. Now, this is also, once um, Miro is left in a half, it becomes obvious that General Brulard thinks that Colonel Dax brought up this matter in order to get Miro's position. Yeah, because Brulard must be so used to the machinations of the promotion promotion and, and yeah. jostling and ego and yeah. that's what it's that's what of a lot of it was about, especially in the nineteenth century. Yeah. With officers. Mm. There really wasn't that much danger of dying. Yeah. Uh, so you discredit your superior officer in order to get his place. Certainly one way, and especially in in the First World War when people are coming in and out of favour almost on a daily basis. <coughs> yeah. And he takes some Persuasion. And once he realises that this isn't Dax's position, he's he's quite admiring. But yeah, I mean, you know, Kirk Douglas, perhaps a little bit of overacting at the end, where yeah. he does suddenly 
Yeah. Say, you know, you damn dirty ape. No, <laughs> that's, that's a different actor in a different film. <laughs> yes. um, but it's got that. Thing. <laughs> yeah, you're a, you're a terrible human being. He, yeah. he, he basically says to Brulard, and Brulard is angry, but then <laughs> says, "Well, I'm disappointed in you." Yeah. But yeah, perhaps he is slightly uh, ad- admiring, but um, not much he can do about that. And then there's a the final scene. Yeah, now this scene, I was thinking, how are they going to end it? Um, you know, it's it's almost like you don't actually need it in the story. No, but it's no. such an incredibly affecting scene. I must mm. say, I don't think this was in the book. I think this yeah. was. I don't know that for sure. I got the feeling it wasn't. I think this is Kubrick's or and the writers. Yeah, it works not because it fits into the story, but just. Poetically, I can't really describe well, why it does, it works. the coda to it fits into the story and yeah. it, and is important for the story. But I mean, let's say what the scene is: yeah. that's the 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 men yeah. are in a sort of cafe in the grounds yeah. of their barracks, and uh, the proprietor brings out a German girl, a captive yeah. German girl, to sing for them. And they're all rowdy, of course. I mean, it's interesting. Guy earlier said, "I haven't thought about sex for yeah. since this started." So it's obviously you know men away from their wives and girlfriends. It's the kind of thing they want to get back home to. It's one of the connections. Yeah. So they see a girl, and it's yeah. it's lust. You yeah, know, it's woohoo, we have cheering. Um, this this young pretty girl who comes out, and you know she, she's played by Suzanne Christian, mm. whose actual name was Christian. Well, next year her name was Christian Kubrick. Yeah, so she married Stanley Kubrick the following year. Her real name is actually Christian Harlan. Ah, right. Um, but in the film, she was. Suzanne Christian for some yeah. reason. But yes, yes, she became Mrs. Kubrick for, until he died. Yes, yes. A good long marriage, although yes. they both had previous yes. marriages. Yeah. Yes, so she sings a song in yeah. German, yeah. but all yeah, gradually the French soldiers hear it and start joining, and their the yeah. demeanour changes from yes. rowdy lust to... She, she basically becomes their object of yeah. lust. She transforms into, into their mother. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To some degree, um, uh, or sister, or whatever they connect... It's the song is the faithful hussar. Oh right, which is a German folk song about a soldier whose true love back ho- dies while he's away. Oh, so it's a very right. poignant yeah. story, and I think it's obviously as one the, the French knew. Yes, yeah. And suddenly there's it's tears. very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> there's silence. There's, there's tears. There's thoughts. And it's very very affecting. Thing. Yeah, it does make you think. A, a nice coda. I was just thinking, I can't work out why it works or mm. why it fits, but it is really, it's it's sort of like, it's got all the emotional impact of the rest of the film. In well, especially fun. when you think of the ones who've just been shot, and especially Corp Paris, who made yeah. the remark about his wife and children. Yes, yeah. And he's not there now. Yeah. The others can think of them, but, you know, that's all they can do. And Dax is listening outside, mm. and he gets the order, you're back to the front, and that's... He's obviously the promotion is gone. In fact, yeah. you're going back to the front right now. Could even be to get rid of him, you know. I think I think that's the implication. Is well, I mean, it would happen anyway. They need the soldiers at the front, but it's certainly yeah. They're probably yeah. You, know, you can imagine he might be given the anthill again or something to yeah. teach him a lesson. And he says, "I'll give the men a few more minutes." Yeah, obviously, listening out, listening, and there the film ends. Yes, it's interesting. We don't see the Germans at all. Mm. Um, yes, you're right, and. I think you said this about Platoon, who's the enemy. Yes, you didn't see the yeah. Vietnamese much, the North Vietnamese much, who 
and who's the enemy? It's ourselves. Yeah. Well, this is kind of the enemies ourselves. It's your own generals, mm, in yeah, a way. Yeah. You've got to survive, A, against the German machine guns, and B, against the people giving you impossible orders. Yeah. The only German you see is the girl at the end, in fact. It's like, from any film that's from the private's point of view, it's about the madness of the whole situation, yeah. rather than the heroism of, uh, you know, like the guns of Neverone, Neverone mm. which mm. is a single mission, and yeah. they succeed. You know, yeah. that's heroism. This is about the insanity of war, isn't it? Yes, yeah. There's a good discussion earlier that we didn't mention, um, which involves Private Arnaud, who's the heroic yes. soldier who, who gets shot, where he's talking to another soldier about death. Mm. And he says, you know, it's not death we're afraid of, it's pain. Yeah. He says, which would you rather die by, the bayonet or the machine gun? Yeah. Says, well, obviously the machine gun. Yes, because it's quicker. Yeah. You don't mind the death, but you do mind the pain yes. before that. Which was an interesting... Point as well yes. uh, within the whole discussion of yeah. the film but yeah so any sort of closing remarks I mean uh, an excellent film yes highly yeah. recommend if you haven't seen it we have totally spoiled it for you but do <laughs> see it <laughs> well I'm, I mean both times I've seen it again I've come to a point where I think I can't remember what happens next but it's still totally gripping yeah know? yes yes it's an excellent film and beautifully shot with mm. Kubrick even though it's only his third full length film mm. uh, it's quite masterful especially mm. those shots down the trenches yeah. The black and whiteness of it yeah. um, <laughs> is, is spot on for the yes. World War One trench warfare yeah. type film, and even for the opulence of the chateau. Yes, with all um, and a lot of those shots are high down, looking down upon people, and there's big halls. Mm, I mean, it's yeah. just massive. Yeah, and and that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the film was the juxtaposition between that and the trenches. Yes, yeah. And then just the human story. Yeah. And then adding to the poignancy, as if it's not poignant enough, is the fact that it's based on truth. Yes. And the whole, sorry, mess of World War One, <laughs> which is very much in our minds at the moment, because we're in the 100th anniversary of the start of World War One. Yes. So, yeah, very interesting film. So, next, our next we film are is... doing... We're doing A Bridge Too Far. Ah! So, we're moving back to the Second World War. Yep. This is one of my favourite war films. Ah. But anyway, well, I've got a few things to say about that already, but we won't. I'll save it. Yeah. So thank you very much for listening to the yes. War Films podcast number three. This has been about Paths of Glory, Stanley Kubrick. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a comment either on our blog or contact us through Twitter or whatever. We've got links on our blog website. And I hope you can join us again for A Bridge Too Far. Thank you very Und als man ihm die Botschaft bracht, dass sein Herzliebchen im Sterben lag, da ließ er all sein Hab und Gut und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Da ließ er all sein Hab und Gut und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Ach, bitte, Mutter, bring ein Licht, mein Liebchen stirbt nicht.